Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Welcome everyone. I'm Vicki Vasiliga, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist section here at ASHP. And thanks for tuning in for this COVID-19 special edition episode. As we all know, COVID-19 has presented many clinical, operational, and educational challenges in the past year. With that in mind, ASHP is sharing insights and lessons learned presented by your peers from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting so that you can incorporate these best practices into your own as we all do our part in caring for our patients. Thank you, James. It's an honor to be a part of this presentation. I will start with a patient case that we will refer to in this presentation. So this is a 46-year-old female with minimal past medical history diagnosed with COVID-19 six days ago who presents to the emergency department with worsening shortness of breath. She has an oxygen requirement in the emergency department escalating from two liters per minute to six liters via nasal cannula and then high flow. She ends up being intubated for hypoxemic respiratory failure and transferred to the ICU. Her current ventilator settings are listed on this slide, including pertinent laboratory values as well. So going into question one, which of the following is the best initial regimen for analgesia and sedation in this patient? So based on this patient's ventilator settings and O2 sat of only 80%, this patient likely requires deeper sedation. So dexmedetomidine may not provide enough sedation to allow for synchrony with the ventilator. With this patient also having a new acute kidney injury, caution should be used when using morphine and midazolam, which can accumulate in renal dysfunction. And despite the triglycerides being elevated at baseline, which is likely due to the cytokine storm syndrome that we see in patients with COVID-19, propofol is not contraindicated, but the patient's triglycerides should probably be closely monitored while on this therapy. As you can see, there are going to be pros and cons with most regimens for patients with ARDS, and careful consideration for the best regimen should be made by a multidisciplinary team, and I will walk through some of the considerations that should be made during this presentation. Since the beginning of the pandemic, the reported rates for ICU admission, acute respiratory distress syndrome, and need for mechanical ventilation and mortality have significantly varied depending on the reported setting and the timing in the pandemic. A recent meta-analysis evaluating the rate of ICU admission across 37 studies, including over 32,000 patients, found that a third of patients with COVID were admitted to an ICU, with 54% of patients having acute respiratory distress. Observational data has demonstrated that intubation rates for patients with COVID are ranging from 12 to 83.9%. And finally, an observational study evaluating 470 patients with ARDS found that 84% of patients received a neuromuscular blocking agent for a median duration of five days. So although the data is varied, it's clear that COVID-19 has resulted in a significant increase in ICU admissions requiring intubation and subsequently need for analgesia and sedation. With no prior experience managing this patient population, we've had to extrapolate from current best practice. The PADIS guidelines, which were most recently updated in 2018 with the help of Dr. Zamita, and recommend managing pain and sedation with an assessment-driven, protocol-based, stepwise approach, encouraging the treatment of pain before initiating sedation. 
So although the guidelines do not recommend against the use of opioids, they do recommend using a multimodal pain strategy with incorporation of opioid adjuncts like acetaminophen, gabapentin, and ketamine to decrease pain intensity and reduce exposure to opioids. They also suggest non-pharmacologic interventions like hot and cold compresses, relaxation techniques, and music therapy to help limit pharmacologic interventions. In terms of sedation, the PADIS guidelines recommend that patients have light sedation targets and that non-benzodiazepines like propofol and dexmedetomidine be used for sedation if indicated. Unfortunately, with a reported ARDS incidence of near 50% and over 80% of COVID-19 ARDS patients requiring neuromuscular blockade, the PADIS guidelines and its recommendation for light sedation may not be feasible for patients with COVID-19 ARDS. Historically, ARDS has equal deep sedation, but that's likely not the best management approach. Two of the largest studies evaluating continuous infusion cystatricurium in patients with early severe ARDS compared neuromuscular blockade to patients receiving sedation at different targets. Patients in both arms of the acuresis trial were deeply sedated, whereas only patients in the treatment arm of ROSE were deeply sedated. The use of NMBAs in a curacis trial resulted in decreased mortality and reduced ventilator-induced lung injury compared to the deep sedation group. Following this trial, the outcomes were thought to be related to NMBA therapy. Fast forward 10 years to the ROSE trial in which NMBA therapy resulted in no difference when compared to light sedation targets. We now understand that deep sedation, especially in early ARDS, is associated with reverse triggering, which can result in breath stacking, ventilator-induced lung injury, and increased mortality. Reverse triggering and increased risk of ICU delirium with decreased time to extubation secondary to deep sedation may have resulted in the higher mortality in the control arm of the curacis trial compared to those in the control arm of the ROSE trial with lighter sedation targets. A multimodal, patient-centered approach, including effective early analgesia, optimal sedation, and avoidance of ICU delirium is imperative for all patients in the ICU and should be considered for patients with ARDS as well. This isn't to say that patients with ARDS should be never deeply sedated, but for patients with severe ARDS and ventilator synchrony, ventilator settings should be optimized before using deep sedation and or a neuromuscular blocker. Despite what we knew about best sedation practices going into the COVID-19 pandemic, literature evaluating sedation practices during the pandemic has demonstrated that we veered off course. A propensity-matched cohort study of 114 COVID-19 ARDS patients matched with 228 patients with ARDS of other etiologies was recently published. The study found that patients with COVID-19 ARDS received higher doses of hypnotic agents, which included opioids and sedatives, which resulted in increased coma and mortality despite controlling for other comorbidities and ARDS severity. The findings of this study are in line with a smaller retrospective study of 24 COVID-19 ARDS patients, which found that COVID patients received opioid doses three times those of historical controls and 15% higher midazolam doses despite the controls having similar durations of mechanical ventilation and a 10-point lower Apache score in the COVID cohort. If best practice guidelines recommend light sedation, how did we get off track? I think there are a number of rationales to explain the trend toward deeper sedation in mechanically ventilated patients with COVID. First, I think concerns related to healthcare worker safety and equipment 
shortages in personal protective equipment may have resulted in less frequent titration of sedation and the tendency to gravitate towards deeper levels of sedation. With concerns related to self-extubation and increased risk of COVID exposure to healthcare workers, some institutions use deeper targets to allow for hospitals to conserve PPE and reduce the need for nurses to enter COVID rooms. Many institutions also try to mitigate this concern with extension tubing and placement of infusion pumps outside the room. But ISMP has since issued a statement related to safety concerns with this practice, forcing hospitals to weigh the pros and cons of this. There are, however, some patients in which deep sedation targets are appropriate, like those patients with severe ARDS on neuromuscular blockade, or to help facilitate comfort and safety with prone position ventilation. There is data demonstrating that deep sedation targets are often left in place, however, long after a neuromuscular blockade or prone positioning has ceased, and therefore clinicians should be cognizant of this and only limit deep sedation to periods when clinically indicated. Through the various waves of COVID in the U.S., we've seen changing patient demographics in our geographical regions. As more young patients were admitted with COVID ARDS, sedation requirements increased with faster drug metabolism. Although these patients do not necessarily need deep sedation, these patients may account for the increased dose of sedatives reported in the observational literature. Drug shortages may also have played a role in the shift towards deeper levels of sedation, with many institutions struggling to obtain sedatives which achieve lighter levels of sedation like propofol and dexmedetomidine. Institutions may have had to revert their practices and begin instituting a greater use of benzodiazepines. With the undisputable evidence linking benzodiazepines to delirium and deeper levels of sedation and prolonged sedation due to metabolite accumulation, this likely resulted in worse patient outcomes. And finally, the ARDS subphenotype associated with COVID may be different than that of non-COVID causes of ARDS, thus may actually require deeper levels of sedation for vent synchrony and redu reduction of ventilator-induced lung injury due to high ventilatory drive. Overall, I think the increased levels of deep sedation are higher than usual doses of opioids and sedatives appears to be multifactorial, and clinicians should still use light sedation targets unless not clinically indicated. Now that we have established that light sedation targets are preferred, does the agent selection matter? There is no data to suggest that one opioid is superior to another in patients with COVID-19. Agent selection should be made based on patient characteristics, and unless there are drug shortages, fentanyl is a great first-line agent. It has a short onset and duration of action, it's hemodynamically neutral compared to other opioids, and it doesn't accumulate in renal dysfunction. Some concerns with fentanyl include its rare incidence of serotonin syndrome and chest wall rigidity, and also its high degree of lipophilicity, which may accumulate more in obese patients with COVID-19. Given the prolonged course of mechanical ventilation, patients with COVID may have tachyphylaxis to fentanyl and another sedation strategy, incorporating a rotation of analgesic agents may help overcome this. Hydromorphone is generally accepted as a second, first or second line sedative agent, analgesic option. Morphine and remifentanil may be more challenging to incorporate into your practice due to their potential for drug accumulation and other adverse effects like hypotension and tachyphylaxis. Consideration for use of non-opioid analgesics should also be made to reduce opioid requirements if possible. 
In terms of choice of sedative, I think there are probably a few more choices that are superior to others on this list compared to the analgesic list. Unless the patient has ventilator dyssynchrony or is on a neuromuscular blocker, propofol or dexmedetomidine may be preferred to allow for light sedation. Benzodiazepines should be avoided if possible due to their risk for accumulation and oversedation, and therefore potentially delaying time to extubation and increasing risk of other complications like ventilator-associated pneumonia, delirium, and venothromboembolism. Recently, the SPICE-3 trial was published, which compared propofol and dexmedetomidine in 4,000 mechanically ventilated patients with 40% of patients admitted with a respiratory disorder. Overall, there was no difference in mortality between groups and patients who received dexmedetomidine had one day greater, which was free from coma and mechanical ventilation compared to propofol. They also experienced significantly more hypotension, bradycardia, and asystole. The COVID-19 pandemic has created a resurgence of ketamine use. Ketamine is an NMDA receptor antagonist and has both analgesic and sedative properties and no effect on respiratory tone and reflexes potentially adding to its benefit in COVID ARDS patients. Effects beyond analgesia and sedation have often limited its use. However, ketamine's psychomimetic effects increased cerebral metabolic rate and cerebral blood flow with concern for increases in ICP, although this has largely been unproven. Although ketamine is a sympathomimetic in critically ill patients, ketamine may also decrease blood pressure due to catecholamine depletion and negative inotropic effects. To date in this pandemic, I've seen mixed results with ketamine use. Um, some patients respond well, while others have seen decreases in sedatives and analgesic use, and other patients tend to be non-responders and need further adjustments. Given the protracted hospital courses, however, that many of these patients will have, there's likely going to be multiple regimens that patients receive throughout their ICU course. One adverse effect of propofol worth taking into special consideration in patients with COVID is hypertriglyceridemia. Some patients with COVID-19 ARDS experience a cytokine storm, which appears similar to macrophage activation syndrome and secondary HLH. These patients often present with elevated triglycerides, further limiting the use of propofol in these patients. A single center retrospective analysis evaluated the incidence of propofol-associated hypertriglyceridemia in patients with ARDS. They found that baseline triglycerides were significantly higher in COVID ARDS patients compared to non-COVID ARDS patients, with a greater number of COVID ARDS patients having triglycerides greater than 500. There is no difference in time to hypertriglyceridemia, but higher body weight, propofol dose, and baseline triglyceride level, as well as lower PF ratio and use of neuromuscular blockades, all predisposed patients to hypertriglyceridemia. There are no reported cases of PRIS or pancreatitis. Although this doesn't preclude patients from propofol use, careful monitoring should be in place, and alternative sedation plans should be considered if hypertriglyceridemia develops. I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all sedative for patients with COVID, and patient-specific factors in, ad in addition to available agents due to drug shortages must be considered when designing a regimen for patients with COVID-19. Use of boluses and adjunct agents can help reduce exposure to continuous infusions and minimize accumulation. So going back to our patient case, it's now day eight of intubation. Current ventilator settings include pressure support ventilation with the tidal volume of six, driving pressure of 10, PEEP of five, 
FiO2 at 40% with an O2 sat of 95%. Now, which of the following is the most appropriate sedative regimen? So I think based on the ventilator settings on day eight, it looks like this patient is in a better place to wean from the ventilator. Like the last question, I think there's definitely more than one right answer in this case. And for sure, this patient should have a spontaneous awakening and spontaneous breathing trial. Following this trial, the patient may be able to be extubated or they may require support due to anxiety or agitation. In that case, maybe dexmedetomidine may be considered. I think each patient will need to be individually evaluated to select most appropriate agent for their current condition and sedation goals, as well as evaluate patients for potential drug interactions, hemodynamic considerations, and acute organ dysfunction. Selecting the best analgesic and sedative regimen and targeting the most appropriate treatment goals doesn't just affect the patients in the short term, but management decisions can have long-term consequences as well. Acutely critically ill patients with long complicated ICU stays can develop delirium, which is an acute fluctuation in consciousness and can occur in up to 80% of critically ill patients. We also now know that the effects of prolonged critical illness impact patients well beyond their ICU admission. Post-intensive care syndrome is new or worsening impairments in cognitive, physical, and or psychiatric function following critical illness and persists beyond hospitalization. Approximately 50% of ICU survivors will experience at least one PICS impairment following hospitalization, with approximately 40% of patients not being able to return to their baseline level of function. There's a significant overlap between delirium and PICS risk factors due to some of the nuances associated with care of critically ill patients with COVID, and these patients are at a significantly increased risk for both delirium and PICS. Increased risk of delirium in patients with COVID may be a direct result of the virus, but it may also be iatrogenic. As I've mentioned, patients with COVID often have prolonged exposure to high doses of sedatives, analgesics, and paralytics, which impairs our ability to perform SATs and SBTs, and this in combination with the isolation that they are in may limit our ability for early mobility. For patients who become delirious, first-line non-pharmacologic interventions like reorientation may be difficult, and with restrictions on visitors at the bedside, this key resource to us has been removed from our anti-delirium toolbox. To enhance ICU liberation, many elements of the PADIS guidelines can be incorporated into the multidisciplinary ABCDEF bundle, which was developed to help guide well-rounded patient care and optimal resource utilization, ultimately resulting in more interactive ICU patients. These patients have better controlled pain and can safely participate in higher order physical and cognitive activities at the earliest point in their critical illness. With the COVID surges we've experienced during this pandemic, I think it's been easy to lose sight of best practices, but it's important to maintain best practices to enhance recovery for patients and reduce the long-term consequences of their illness. The 2018 PADIS guidelines recommend that patients be regularly assessed for delirium using validated tools like the CAM-ICU or ICDSC tool. This isolation for COVID-19 patients has made this challenging, but it's important for early identification of delirium. The guidelines strongly recommend against the routine use of pharmacologic agents for delirium prevention and treatment. Non-pharmacologic interventions focusing on reorientation, mobility, sleep, hearing, vision, should be used to prevent and treat delirium. COVID-19 patients has made this 
non-pharmacologic intervention challenging, further increasing the risk for delirium. Dexmedetomidine should be considered in patients struggling to wean to extubation for agitation, and if patients are experiencing severe stress, distress related to delirium, short-term antipsychotics may be considered. There have been a number of deliriolytic agents which have been studied for the management of ICU delirium, with antipsychotics being most commonly studied. There's currently no data specifically evaluating these medications in COVID-19 patients, but they are being used more frequently due to the high rates of delirium in these patients due to high severity of illness and long and complicated hospital stays. They're being used as an adjunct to our traditional sedatives and analgesics to help us reach sedation goals and minimize continuous infusions and volume loads. Haloperidol is typically our go-to antipsychotic for acute agitation since it is also available IV. And use of atypical antipsychotics for acute agitation is more limited due to the majority of these medications only being available in oral dosage forms. QTC prolongation, impaired hepatic function, and drug interactions are challenges when using these medications. Phenoparbital has also seen a resurgence during the pandemic due to its ability to decrease respiratory drive and its availability in an IV dosage form, but patients should be monitored for propylene glycol toxicity. Finally, another older medication with some resurgence has been valproic acid. There are a few retrospective studies which have evaluated its use in critically ill, agitated patients. Valproic acid is available both IV and PO and is minimally impacted by renal dysfunction. It does have some effects that can be limiting in critically ill patients, however, like thrombocytopenia, hepatotoxicity, hyperammonemia, and can further complicate ICU delirium. All of these medications should only be used for the shortest duration possible. What we know is that post-intensive care syndrome is prevalent in survivors of critical illness and that long-term physical, cognitive, psychiatric effects in patients with long-haul COVID that patients are experiencing, these have also been a result of other pandemics as well. In follow-up studies of patients who have survived other pandemics like the SARS, H1N1, and MERS have found that patients have been significantly impacted by their hospitalization. In a meta-analysis of over 2,800 patients who survived SARS and MERS found high rates of reduced exercise capacity and reduced pulmonary function. 39% of patients had PTSD, 33% of patients experienced depression, and 30% of patients experienced anxiety. A large cohort study of sepsis survivors found that survivors had a threefold increased odds in moderate to severe cognitive impairment and developed one to two new limitations in activities of daily living. Overall, ICU survivors with high severity of illness scores rank lowest in terms of long-term quality of life. One of these trials specifically evaluated the impact of isolation, which I thought was interesting. In a cohort of SARS survivors who had been isolated in the ICU, it's believed that their isolation from family and friends, uncertain disease outcome, and threat of death were major drivers for their PTSD and depression that the patients experienced post-hospitalization. I think these ICU survivor follow-up studies give us insight to the global challenges we can expect to face when dealing with long-haul COVID-19 survivors in the months and years to come. I think it's too early for us to tell how long the effects of COVID will last in some patients, but in an already overburdened healthcare system, COVID-19 further adds to this workload. In a recently published meta-analysis evaluating 18,000 patients 
with COVID, it was reported that 80% of patients who had survived COVID reported at least one long-term symptom and a total of 55 long-term effects were seen. The most common symptoms were fatigue, followed by headache, attention disorder, hair loss, dyspnea, muscle and joint pain, memory loss, cough, and the list goes on. There was no organ system that was spared by the consequences of COVID, and it's unclear how long these effects will persist. So as patients are preparing for ICU and hospital discharge, I think that there are a number of interventions that we can make to help mitigate the implications of post-ICU care or long-haul COVID. For many patients with COVID-19, this may be the first time that they've touched a hospital system or even been in the ICU. So we need to make sure that patients have the appropriate follow-up following their discharge, including respiratory therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy, and a, potentially a mental health provider. Medication optimization is also really important and will impact outcomes following discharge. Studies which have evaluated the unintended consequences of medications continued at ICU discharge have reported rates of medications being continued unintentionally anywhere from 43 to 84% from the ICU and up to 25% from the hospital. So ensuring that medications are optimized at discharge can help avoid unintended adverse effects and drug interactions and potentially even hospital readmission. Up to 40% of sepsis survivors are readmitted within 90 days of discharge and ensuring that patients have the appropriate outpatient follow-up and services needed can potentially help reduce this readmission. It's also important to help patients identify a support team for which they can go to for activities of daily living, medication adherence, transport to appointments, and the availability of peer support programs is growing, allowing survivors to connect with other survivors and share their stories. Finally, consideration for referral to a post-ICU recovery clinic, if available, is another great idea. Post-ICU recovery clinics deliver ICU-specific follow-up care in an outpatient setting. So at the Cleveland Clinic, our multidisciplinary team consists of a critical care physician, a psychiatrist, physical therapist, respiratory therapist, case manager, and a pharmacist. We spend time evaluating the patient and identifying interventions based on the complications they're presenting with. We then reconvene as a multidisciplinary team and share our findings and recommendations to develop a plan, which may include recommendations for continued physical therapy, establishment with a mental health provider, or just continuation of medications that are no longer indicated for the patient. We can also help with financial assistance given the financial burden following hospitalization for many patients. As we're meeting with COVID survivors in clinic, the most common referrals we're making are to psychiatry for PTSD and new anxiety and respiratory therapy for new oxygen requirements and severe deconditioning. A number of studies have published benefits linking a post-ICU recovery clinic to better care following discharge. In a study evaluating pharmacist involvement in post-ICU recovery clinics, the mean number of pharmacist interventions was four and included interventions like discontinuous medications no longer indicated, dose optimization, identification of required vaccinations, and need for laboratory monitoring. In a randomized control trial of 232 ICU survivors, either randomized to a structured ICU recovery clinic or usual care, 
patients who were randomized to the ICU recovery clinic had a trend towards decreased 30-day hospital readmission and had a statistically significantly lower seven-day hospital readmission and median time to readmission, with patients in the ICU recovery program having a median time to readmission of seven days versus 21 days for usual care. The composite outcome of death or readmission within 30 days of hospital discharge occurred in 18% of patients randomized to the recovery program and 29% of usual care. Although these studies have reported many measurable benefits to patients as a result of post-ICU clinics, a study published last year actually sought to evaluate mechanisms for improved care in the ICU as a result of the patient's and clinician's involvement in clinic. This study found that post-ICU clinics help clinicians gain a better understanding of the patient experience and participation in clinic also taught clinicians the importance of a thorough communication at transitions of care with patients, families, and the receiving medical team. Finally, the post-ICU clinic was found to boost morale in participants. And I think this last point regarding morale, I can speak to from a personal perspective. For many of us working in the ICU, COVID-19 has made work really exhausting at times. For me, attending post-ICU clinic each week, meeting with ICU survivors, most of whom recently have been survivors of COVID-19, it's really a good opportunity for us to reset and remind ourselves of the tough work that we do in the ICU and that it's all worth it. I think the patients I meet with are incredibly appreciative of the work and that we have done and the care that they've received, and they're so thankful to be alive despite the setbacks. I think we can improve our ICU care by learning from patients' perceptions of their ICU experience. Key takeaways from my segment of the presentation include that COVID-19 has created a unique set of challenges in regards to the management of pain, agitation, and delirium in critically ill patients. Regimens should be designed to include incorporation of current drug shortages and patient characteristics, and the regimen should be frequently reevaluated to meet the ongoing patient needs. We must encourage use of the ABCDEF bundle, and we cannot allow COVID to derail us from best practices. The consequences of COVID-19 are likely going to persist following hospital discharge, and we must be cognizant of these consequences and find pathways to help patients receive ongoing support like post-ICU recovery clinics. Thank you so much for listening and joining us today for this special edition podcast on COVID-19. Be sure to follow us at ASHP Official wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our COVID-19 Resource Center at ashp.org backslash COVID-19 for the most up-to-date developments on COVID-19. Take care and thank you for all you do. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.